Well, good evening to you all. It's a real pleasure to be uh, participating again uh, with you at uh, Truth Exchange. And so thank you very much, uh, Peter and the team, for uh, having me again with you this year. I've been assigned the task of this evening of speaking about the issue of uh, interfaith uh, pluralism or syncretism as it exists uh, in our culture today. Now, in many respects, um, what I want to be able to do tonight is provide something of the big picture context for everything that we've been talking about. And uh, over the last couple of years, I've been managed to be sort of assigned that kind of a task because I think all that we've been uh, hearing about so far uh, at the conference uh, really is accounted for by something of the historical uh, story that I want to uh, tell you this evening. And I hope that as a result, it will begin to make more and more sense of the uh, religious uh, makeup and character of our present cultural environment and help us to understand the urge to interfaith uh, thinking that is present in our time. So, my, I think my title is actually, uh, Can't We All Just Get Along? Which is something my wife sometimes asks me about me and other people, but uh, I've not satisfied her with a response yet. Now, it's not uncommon for us to hear that there are uh, many paths to God. So beginning with the sort of the mundane that you will have all heard from friends and colleagues that there's many roads to enlightenment and many routes to spiritual fulfillment. Uh, you go to church, I feng shui my apartment and do yoga, and people think they're making some kind of equivalent <laughs> statement. We heard as well already that the challenge facing the church is that one in three emerge, uh, millennial evangelicals don't believe Jesus is the only way to God. The emergent church movement, which I was recently told is not the topic of conversation these days, which may in fact be true, is only because it's gone mainstream within white Protestantism and preaches a religionless, creedless Christianity that favors symbols, esoteric experience, and prayers to our mother who art in heaven, and so on. And the interesting thing is that the Western state is keen to support this freedom of worship. Not freedom of religion, I should add, but freedom of worship. And it welcomes diversity, multiculturalism, toleration, the contribution of all religions to the social tapestry, as they would say. So all of those things you've heard and you're familiar with, it in, in many respects, what people are saying is that there are many ways up the mountain and they all lead to the top, to God. Now, the first obvious problem with that conviction is the pretended location of the observer of this religious phenomenon. Where would you need to be located to know that all paths lead to the top of a mountain? Actually, even more than that, you would need to be way above. You'd need the helicopter view uh, of the mountain to know that all roads led to the top. So actually, this so-called humble assertion of modern religious syncretism amounts actually to a claim to have a divine perspective. Because it's positioned as a humble approach to religions. Well, there are many routes. There are many ways. You don't be so judgmental. Be more tolerant. They all lead to God. But actually, in order to know that, you would need a divine, you would need an absolute knowledge of the, the conditions of all religions. You'd need an absolute knowledge of the world. To put it another way, if all the re beliefs or religious worldviews of the world are akin to blindfolded people all feeling a different part of an elephant, have you heard that illustration before? And uh, some people are feeling uh, the tusk, another the trunk, another the tail, and they all think that their description is the true one when, in fact, all the devotees are feeling one truth from different perspectives. This would, need, this would require that the person who is uh, apparently establishing the truth of pluralism or syncretism, they would have to occupy what we can call an epistemic position. That's a position of knowledge 
that was absolute. They are the people with no blindfold on. And they recognize that all these perspectives are just a different takes on the same one divine reality. Well, of course, that would require the divine perspective. No blindfold is on, therefore, the religious syncretist who claims to know that, well, everybody's just feeling the same reality. As such, these seemingly humble approaches to religion actually not only dash in pieces the real historical claims of biblical faith and actually the claims of many other religions because they relativize them, they also presuppose an absolute divine perspective on truth. So there's nothing humble about contemporary uh, pluralism and uh, syncretism. In fact, the basic claim of contemporary, contemporary religious pluralism that uh, relativistic man has a divine perspective uh, is actually implicit in all efforts at promoting religious syncretism. So whenever people say, you know, we could just all get, why don't we just all get along? We're all going to the same place. We're all aiming at the same end. It's God, enlightenment, whatever it may be. This claim to a divine perspective, which we'll, we'll see why shortly, is implicit in it. And so what we have is an, a shift of the locus of revelation and authority within the interfaith idea, moving from God to man. One cultural theologian has put it this way, for humanism, man's religious consciousness and man's psychology is the real source of religious knowledge and revelation. The true word comes out of man, and therefore man's experience needs to be developed. Religion then ceases to be, thus saith the Lord, the word of God, but rather becomes, thus say I, the word according to man. And it's that uh, cultural motive that has actually profoundly affected the church, especially the millennial generation, and that shouldn't surprise us. Human beings, we know from uh, a biblical doctrine of creation, have all been made in the image of God and in terms of his purposes, so that even when they're rebelling against God in this religious revolution, they can't help but represent God's purposes in a deformed fashion. And as a result, what happens is that human beings are committed to creating paradise and increasing their knowledge and having a kind of dominion in every area of life, but without the living God. So they're still about the same pattern, but it's a deformed pattern. And so particular effort is actually put forward, since we're religious creatures, to find religious unity as a prelude to socio-political unity apart from the word of God. So there is a concerted attempt in our time, in our culture, to find religious unity in order to accomplish a socio-political unity. However, true religion in Scripture is always God-centered, not man-centered. It's not about the, the offering of man's psychological depths or subconscious. It's about God and his Revelation. The psalmist makes this clear. He says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and faithfulness. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So in humanistic and pagan uh, religions, the purpose of the gods is always to please man. That's why man's um, psychological religions are so man-centered. They're so uh, bent on pleasing man and his desires. They always fit so neatly, don't they, into our own desires. It's very convenient. But in biblical faith, our purpose is to please and glorify God. 
And in that perspective, the all-personal, all-relational God speaks an infallible word with binding authority, whereas in religious syncretism, the mind, idea, or experience of man reveals the divine reality. So in the first, you get concrete historical revelation in history and the building of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And in syncretistic mysticism, we get a lifeless, meaningless blankness as described by the psalmist. And it's interesting that that's the direction of pagan religious experience. Uh, as one theologian states it well, I think in his religious quest, the humanist refuses to look beyond himself for his God. The more he intensifies his quest, the more he becomes like the idols described by the psalmist, speechless, mindless, and senseless. Not surprisingly, the heart of mysticism is the same speechless, mindless, senseless experience. The mystic calls for the exclusion of the external world, doctrine, revelation, and outer experience for total concentration on an inward blankness. The Hindu mystic declares, thou art that. That is, the mystic is himself one with the ultimate power and is ultimate power. So if we speak the word of truth, if man speaks the word of truth from our own consciousness, a new revelation... The assumption is that we then have the power to fulfill that new word. If we speak the word religiously, we then have the power to fulfill that word. So in interfaith, syncretistic, advoca uh, uh, religious advocates that we experience and uh, we, we see in our culture today, they typically believe that we can overcome war and all social problems and difficulties and create this new world order of brotherhood and so inside of the church, uh, groups like uh, associated with the emergent church write books like Everything Must Change, and they tell us about this new kingdom, and they write their manifestos about world humanitarian peace and interreligious unity and harmony. Well, I want to trace the source of that belief system this evening and argue, actually, that oneist cosmology is inescapably present in the interfaith syncretistic urge of our culture in and outside the church. And in conclusion, I want to offer some thoughts with respect to the true nature of the kingdom of God. So here's my first point. That was just my intro. And now we'll start developing the, the main point of the, the lecture. Uh, first, axiological rebellion. That's point number one. So write that down if you're taking notes. Axiological rebellion. The the syncretistic urge begins with the radical assertion of human autonomy. The notion that man is totally free, he's a law to himself, he's independent of God and his word. Now, human autonomy is uh, an axiological rebellion. Axiology concerns, in very broad terms, goodness, values, all moral thought and ideas about goodness and beauty are subsumed in the title uh, in the, in the name axiology, okay? Human autonomy is axiological rebellion because it is a rejection of God's value structure of the true, of the good, of the right, of the beautiful as God has declared them and then seeks to redefine good and evil in terms of man's will and desire as we were hearing from Rebecca this afternoon. However, this rebellion inescapably takes place, as I've said, in the framework of God's creational pattern and is pursued in this attempt to establish community or kingdom without God. So we need uh, to have at least some understanding of the non-believer, the pagan's problem. They are creatures made in God's image. They can't escape the categories the creational patterns and categories which God has established, so they distort and pervert them. And so they are in pursuit of a community, a religious community or kingdom without God. And this requires syncretism, bringing the would-be gods into an organized community. Now, in order to understand this, I think we need to go back to Scripture, to the original rebellion expressed in an ancient syncretistic building project which some of you will be familiar with. At the very beginning, you see, in uh, 
the covenant of God, and before Abraham, back with the early patriarchs, God's purpose was the establishment of a holy society or city with its foundation after the fall in the institution of sacrifice. And we see this with Seth, with Shem, with Noah, and then, of course, with Abraham. But at the same time, there was a parallel development of the society of Satan. And I, that's what I'm going to call it, the society of Satan. That was proclaimed after the flood at Babel. Let's go to Genesis 11, and this is what we read. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Now, this was the first uh, effort to create a good, religiously united society. And it was an act of rebellion because it was actually pursued in order to bring a closer unity of people against God. That was its objective. To actually not just have individual rebels, but to have collective rebellion. The great community that settled in the area of Shinar, which was later known as Mesopotamia, which was later called Babylonia. And the tower was almost certainly a stepped pyramid, which we call a ziggurat. And the top floor was probably used for astronomical and astrological purposes and as a center for rulers who had likely reached a certain degree of attainment in this essentially mystery religion. Now, when it says its top was in the heavens, it didn't mean it was they were trying to build a skyscraper, sort of the competition between, you know, Toronto and Dubai or something. Uh, in the tallest freestanding structure, but rather it was a power center equaling God. Its top was in the heavens. Uh, It was a religious development, a system of the deification of men, corrupting the meaning in all probability, I think, of the constellations, identifying them with angels and pre- and post-Diluvian ancestors of men. The Bible actually tells us the name Babel means confusion, whereas the ancient Akkadian says it means gate of God, Babylu. So actually, it's interesting. We have God's interpretation of the tower and man's interpretation of the tower. Man's interpretation was it's the gate of God. God's was that it's confusion. And the purpose of it was for the new God to make himself truly sovereign over the earth, to control reality, to make a divine claim for himself. True religion would from thenceforth be a product of man's consciousness, his self-deification, and fatalistically they would adore the celestial bodies. In fact, the expression, let us make a name for ourselves, literally means to define, to fix, to establish by our own authority this self-defining, this naming of everything else. That man, in his own terms, in terms of his own purpose and will, would predestine and govern all reality. So this project was instituted in part, interestingly enough, to avoid being scattered or separated, which for Man implied division. If he was separated or scattered, then for him division was thereby implied, which must be bad. But for pagan man, ultimate power can't be divided power. 
So every effort was put forth to compel human unity in the name of this new faith in man's religious self-consciousness. God's concern with this presumption we see from the text was that united with an evil imagination, man's dream of total power, his religious project of unity being the gate of God, would mean this attempt at total government, total control. And so God undermined the interfaith project of Babel and he reduces them to confusion. And isn't it interesting that the peculiar mark of all paganism is its spiritual, ethical, and sexual confusion. Now in the biblical view, the unity of the human family was predicated on the unity of God's relational being and man's inward covenantal unity with God. And this would create a... Uh, a geographically diverse community worshipping the living God. This was typified in Abraham's faith. The promise to all of his descendants was ultimately worked out, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ. But by contrast, Babel was a heaven-defying project that wanted to bring about a forced outward unity. And the fear of being scattered indicated the sense of inward separation, you see, that man was already feeling from God. He was covenantally alienated from God. He felt separated already. So he wants to build this religious unity that could be the basis of social unity. And, of course, you cannot have social unity without religious unity. That's true. The ancient peoples, they were not stupid. They were rebellious, but they weren't idiots. They understood the issues. The coming Babylonian world monarchy was Babel continued. And so you have these two views of Babel. One, a place of confusion. The other view that it was the gate of God resting on the satanic promise, you shall be as gods. The syncretist looks at Babel and the dispersion then as God being the sinner and man being the victim of God's Division or separation of people, morally, religiously, ethically. The tower then was not only anti-God, it was actually an indictment of God. And that's clear, actually, as we'll see in a moment, from who the founder was. This attempt to build a one-world order based on a unifying religion is an indictment of God and his purposes. It was in direct contravention to God's express command. Now, Just think about this for a moment. This is very telling that this period after the flood was perceived and I'm sure would have been perceived by many of the ancients as a kind of rebirth of humankind, a kind of second creation. After all, the world that then was being overwhelmed with water, the flood waters recede and there's one family left. And from that family, all the nations of the earth descend. The British uh, Egyptologist David Rawl has argued that Nimrod, later deified as the Mesopotamian hunter god Ninurta, was the priest king of Uruk, whose name derives from the Hebrew word meaning to the Hebrew verb meaning to rebel. Now Genesis tells us that Nimrod, this, the, the man, the rebel, was the founder of this project, this religious project. The son of Cush, Nimrod, was a mighty hunter, and the Bible tells us, and history shows, archaeology shows, he was an empire builder, and he began with Babel. One of his first acts was to adopt the goddess Inanna as the patron deity of a great religious complex. Inanna means house of heaven. She was the mountain goddess of the ancient Sumerians. She was their favored deity, and she represented fertility. Now, David Rawl suggests, and I'm convinced by him, I think, that she was the ancient earth mother goddess who is recognizable as a deified Eve. Now, if you accept the, the fact that uh, there was a, an immediate contemporaneousness of the, these early patriarchs and these early... Uh, founders of human civilization and our first parents. And they deified very quickly their ancestors. She was, after all, the mother of all living. And you can see how a corruption of that idea led to her deification. The original home of this goddess was uh, was across the northern mountains in a Sumerian kingdom, a paradise land located in a place called Edin. The Bible's Eden. 
The Babylonians later called her Ishtar. The Canaanites called her Astarte. She is likewise the Ashtaroth of the Old Testament and the Isis of the Greeks. The earliest form of her worship was as Lady of Heaven, Virgo quite possibly, uh, in the Zodiac, is representative of her. Now Nimrod was, even according to Scripture, the founder of these ancient civilizations, of these early cities of the ancient world. And to later generations, he was a semi-divine hero who becomes synonymous with Marduk of the Babylonians, of Osiris of the Egyptians, of Asher of the Assyrians. He was the state deity. Now, this is very, very interesting. When you explore paganism and you're working your way through perhaps one of Peter Jones's books and you're reading about all these gods and goddesses and it's very difficult to remember the names of all of them and what kind of relationship do they sustain to each other and so forth. Well, certain uh, ancient historians and Egyptologists have argued that... They're all related. Nimrod was the founding father of a pagan priest kingship and thus of state worship. And he was adopted into the Western pantheon initially as Ninus, then by the Phoenicians as Adonis, by the Greeks as Dionysus, and by the Romans as Bacchus, and is identified with the constellation Orion. This is a man. This is a human empire builder. Rawl goes as far as to say that all goddess worship stems from the deification of Eve, who is later made the consort of Marduk, who is Nimrod, and that the male deities of the scriptures, including Baal, meaning Lord, are none other than a deified Nimrod, the first potentate of the earth. Now that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. The ancient historian Bill Cooper concurs, and he argues that not only was he the most notorious man of the ancient world, but he was the founder of paganism. He was the founder of syncretism. Nimrod, the builder of this great tower. And this included the practices of the magic arts, astrology, human sacrifice, and so on. And he was deified and worshipped under numerous names from antiquity. So notice, first of all, that the gods are largely man's ancestors, and angelic or demonic powers, and that paganism traces to a common origin in these pantheistic myths of creation from a watery chaos out of which the gods and man evolve in a continuum of being. So the basis of all interfaith syncretism traces itself back to Nimrod, this first empire builder. It's historical. It's not just, the ancients didn't just come up with these ideas. Somebody meditating in a cave one day and come up with the names of a whole bunch of gods they thought they'd worship. We'll return to uh, the culmination of Nimrod's project a bit later, but I want us to be aware that the starting point of one world religious objectives was this communal, original, axiological rebellion against God. That men rejected deliberately and specifically the requirements of God and established a religion of man's self-consciousness, a religion of human psychology in which man worships himself and identifies himself with the stars and with the planets and so on. Point two. Peter's given me a couple of hours tonight, so we've got plenty of time. Point two is ontological subversion. So we start with axiological rebellion, and it leads to ontological subversion. It proceeded then to this subversion of truth and the development and dissemination of occult and psychological religious practices where man's idea, not revelation, is the basis of truth. Now, ontology concerns being. Ontology uh, is really about the ultimate questions and foundations of life and thought. It comes even before cosmology. Ontology is about what is. Cosmology then concerns the worldview, the shape of all of that. Now, as you study ancient cosmology, what you find is, again, this remarkable similarity and correlation between the origin accounts of the ancient world and their deities. Genesis is the one exception which all indicate a oneist ontology. Henry Morris has put it this way. 
This remarkable similarity of the cosmogenies of many different nations of antiquity, as well as their respective pantheons of gods and goddesses, is obviously more than coincidence. The nations and their religious systems have a common origin. Now this makes a whole, when you get this, this makes a whole load of sense of the seeming massive complexity of contemporary syncretism and the interfaith movement, paganism, what we call the new age. The cosmologies of the ancient world all begin, actually, as does the cosmology of the modern world, with a primordial chaos. Now, for the ancients, it was a formless, watery, empty state. Now, think about it. If you are a post-Diluvian, that means after the flood patriarch, you are children of those early patriarchs, in rebellion against God, your knowledge goes as far back only as the waters of the flood and a rebirth of creation out of those waters. It's generally agreed on, actually, by anthropologists that all the nations and tribes of the world have a common origin. The Greeks actually acknowledged their religious philosophies were derived from the ancient Egyptians and the Sumerians. The Greek and the Roman pantheons of the gods have a one-to-one correspondence, not only with each other, but actually with Babylonia and Egypt. There's a tremendous degree of correlation. Amongst these gods, the supreme Babylonian god was Marduk, who I've already said was probably Nimrod, the builder of Babel. Somehow this rebel man is placed at the foundation of pagan cosmology. It was the Enuma Elish myth, perhaps the oldest of all the pagan uh, cosmogenies that was adapted later by the Greek philosophers for their own systems of thought by Hesiod, by Thales, and then Anaximander. And so there, in the first Babylonia or Sumeria, we trace back to the one world religious leader Nimrod, the rebel that gave us this foundational oneist myth that Rome and Greece and India and so on, all of these religious systems have been constructed on. And it's the very same religious foundation that is now enabling the flourishing of paganism in the West, which builds on the evolutionary myth of our own time. Oneism, though, what we see about it in, at Babel is that it was a religious and political vision. Or if I can say religio-political. Is that allowed, Peter? Just about, yeah. The great myths of the world have this common historic origin, and yet the geography of the myths is not from the earth. The geography of the myths is in the heavens, and the actions of celestial bodies, and the early Tower of Babel was a tower in the heavens, concerning the heavens. Don't forget, principalities and powers were created by God. And this, these myths actually passed on a body of astronomical, astrological knowledge. Now, you need astronomical knowledge before you can have astrological projections. They were smart people. And the persistence of astrology is astonishing, is it not? From Babel right to the present where I suspect many of your friends and neighbors consult their horoscope. Now, where did that idea come from? Well, I think the answer is right here at Babel. It's possible that the zodiac, its meaning being reinterpreted, passed on a creation account as told by the ancients that may have been originally intended for a godly purpose and was redefined, reinterpreted. So the ancients told their stories of the gods through the celestial bodies. The geography is the heavens. And those heavenly bodies in Scripture actually refer to both angelic and human powers throughout prophetic literature. Is that not interesting? The sun shall be darkened, the moon shall be turned to blood, the powers of the heavens. It's all, the Bible uses the language of the celestial bodies, indicating both principalities and powers and human rulers and governors. This is the mystery, Revelation says, of Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Revelation 17.5, where the entire complex of pagan syncretism emerged. And so with that rebellion, we have this development of a new religious ontology 
that begins with this monotheism, deteriorates to pantheism, polytheism, polytheism, and then a crude animism in various parts of the world. There can be little doubt that Nimrod was an occultist in communion with demonic spirits. That wouldn't be a precedent, would it? Because uh, that wouldn't be, he wouldn't be alone because, as Peter has pointed out, Carl Jung in the 20th century, uh, as his adaptation of a psychological religion, he was enthralled himself by pagan cosmology and ontology and was introduced to these ideas by demonic spirit guides, one of which he, uh, his spirit guide he called Philemon, I believe. Now, in the religious syncretism that uh, Paul confronts in Athens, don't forget the interfaith idea is not something that, oh, suddenly the church is encountering the interfaith and syncretistic project. Paul, in Athens, confronts religious syncretism on a grand scale. He confronts the Stoics, for one, and their pantheon of these ancient gods. They viewed all reality as pervaded by an intelligent force. They were yet deeply involved in divination, which was common throughout the Roman world. They linked these to astrological beliefs. These were tied to pantheistic doctrines of fate. And you find these things in the philosophers themselves. It's no surprise that as we turn again to paganism in our culture, all these occult arts are being practiced in the name of interfaith and even in ecumenical circles where we're trying to offer prayers again to our mother, goddess worship. Inanna is being worshipped again even in the churches. Moreover, as Tarnas points out in The Passion of the Western Mind, he says this, the existence of the world-governing reason has another important consequence for the Stoic. Because all human beings share in the divine logos, all were members of a universal human community, a brotherhood of all mankind that constituted a world city or cosmopolis. And each individual was called upon to participate actively in the affairs of the world and thereby fulfill his duty to this great community. So that inherent in this uh, cosmopolitanism, religious cosmopolitanism, was a cosmopolis. The philosopher Anthony Kenny points out that the culmination of all the philosophical thought of the ancient world is found in Plotinus. Plotinus posited the one interestingly enough. The one, the spirit, and soul, a sort of unholy trinity. But they weren't equally ultimate like the members of the trinity in the Bible. No, spirit and soul were emanations of the one, which is utterly simple. And Kenny says this, if the one is beyond being, it is also beyond knowledge. And quoting Plotinus, he says, this is Plotinus now, our awareness of it is not through science or understanding as with our other as with other intelligent objects, but by way of a presence superior to knowledge. Such awareness is a mystical vision because the one is unknowable. It is also ineffable. And Kenny goes on, Plotinus elsewhere says that we cannot even call the one it or say that it is. We have to conclude that there is only a single soul. Thus, at the end of our journey, he says, this is Kenny, we reach the one and only one. So Peter's not off his rocker. Kenny agrees with him there. Now, these are philosophical expressions of the lifeless, dumb idols of Psalm 115. That, all that's happening there is the, the crass, animistic idolatry that you find in biblical idolatry is transposed into philosophical idolatry. It's the same blank, senseless, mindless, cannot speak, cannot communicate this conception of God. They are empty expressions. So the rebellion of Nimrod at Babel leads to a pantheistic theological and philosophical vision or an ontology that is able to embrace all the gods into a social order where the world city has a priestly function for man began with a collective effort to rebel against God. Thus, a new religious system of worship of creation is developed, centering on man as a god or goddess, the stars and forces of nature as aspects of the divine, and ancient celestial demonic powers influencing and governing the future. So that from the cosmogony 
of Babylon emerges an ontology of pagan oneism as everything emerges from this primeval chaos in a continuity of being. Now, here is the important point about that. This connects man with the gods. If there's just a continuity of all being where men and gods all emerge from this primeval chaos and man is deified, man is directly identified with God, with the divine. And the implications of this are staggering because it enables him to claim claim divine status or sanction for his politico-religious empire building that requires an enforced unity. Now that was the philosophical atmosphere into which the early church preached the gospel. Paul addresses the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers in Acts 17. That was the context that the early church declared the gospel into. It was an expression of the lie, and the political corollary of this ontological subversion was not toleration of the Christian church. You would think that this embrace of all the gods would mean toleration for Christianity, but it didn't, which brings me to my final point, political totalitarianism. So we've had axiological rebellion, ontological subversion, which leads to political totalitarianism, which is linked to the interfaith project. Here's how. Babylon today, geographically, is Iraq. But Revelation says Babylon, the great whore, is to be identified with ancient Babylon and Rome and also with Tyre and also with Jerusalem and every nation that seeks an empire that dreams of religious unity and dominion apart from God. What Babylon depicts is an ideal unity of peace and brotherhood which mimics the kingdom of God and tempts man with a counterfeit. And that's why Babylon is called a whore. It tempts man with a counterfeit religious unity and kingdom. Whoredom happens when people seek to find or know God by sidestepping the fact of sin the righteousness of God and his law, and circumventing the necessary atonement of Christ at the cross. And so all interfaith, pluralistic, inclusivist visions seek to accommodate man's self-justifying psychology, which is just idolatry, into a very broad definition of spirituality. Man's route to God in interfaith is not surrender before the living God, ever. It's not entrance into the kingdom by faith and repentance. It's self-realization, as you've heard many times at Truth Exchange, of the divine within. That I am the Logos. That all my problems, all my difficulties, all my guilt, all my shame are nothing to do with sin. It's my bad environment and my lack of psychological freedom. And spirituality will free me from those things. As a result, the one thing that cannot be tolerated in this religio-political alliance is biblical faith. The ecumenical world of interfaith has no place for biblical Christianity, and so neither does its counterpart, the modern state. Interfaith religionists are always statists. I'm going to explain why in a moment. It is thus absolutely necessary for mysticism to replace Christianity to build religious and social unity. If everybody is an expression of the divine, the self is the source of truth. And if you challenge somebody's psychological reality, that's heresy. You see? Because if you are the the expression, uh, that you are an interface of the divine and the human then your psychological reality is true, at least for you. And to challenge that is heretical. That's why people get angry and upset. Is because it's heretical for you to challenge their psychological reality. Tolerance and relativity are thus required for the political order. And biblical Christianity doesn't accept relativity, relativism. Axiological autonomy means there is no right or wrong, and rebel man will express the God within through whatever sexuality he desires. He'll pray to whatever God, spirit, or goddess expresses his inner being. To quote my friend Peter Jones, let me, uh, this should get me some brownie points. Here we are. This is what he says in uh, Spirit Wars, Pagan 
revival in Christian America. Who's read that? Who hasn't read uh, Spirit Wars? Don't be ashamed. Just put your hands up. Who's not? Shame on you. Put your hands down. Right. In, he says this, in this great expanse of energy, divinity, and truth, no religion can claim exclusive truth. Because Orthodox Christianity commits this unpardonable sin, it is the major obstacle to the religious and social harmony of the planet. Religions must blend into a global, unified syncretism. The various creeds are interchangeable and spiritual experiences are in communion with the same occult reality. The Parliament of the World's Religions in Chicago in 1993 was a pre-programmed happening of monistic spirituality. Conferees were to discover behind their external differences a shared human experience of the divine within. Now, there's always been an alliance in paganism between the pagan priesthood and the state. This is what enabled Roman syncretism. It made poss- was made possible, actually, by the spread of the Greek language and culture, just like Babel had this one language and culture. It developed a large free trade market. There was a growing sense of unity for the human race. There was openness to Eastern spirituality. And the result was the emergence of religious syncretism in Rome. This is what the church confronted. Now, outwardly, this was a diverse melting pot of the Greco-Roman world, just like today. But these cults were able to come together in this grand synthesis because the ideas behind them was this same basic foundational idea that stemmed from Babel. Many different gods were therefore housed in the temples. So Paul, going into Athens, sees a temple filled with idols, and there's even an altar to an unknown god, which he uses as a platform to declare the gospel. And it was believed that this syncretism that the Roman world promoted was the answer to world peace. Peter also notes that the emperor Valentinian in AD 384 proposed a policy of religious tolerance. Quote, we gaze at, this is Valentinian, we gaze at the same stars. The sky belongs to all. The same universe surrounds us. What difference does it make by whose wisdom someone seeks the truth? We cannot attain to so great a mystery by one road. That was said in AD 384. So politics and spirituality came together and are very much together again. Political power, pantheistic religion, occult spirituality, expressions of alternate sexuality merged in the Roman culture. And it was a pagan colossus on a grand scale. We have to remember that. What the early church confronted appeared impenetrable to the church. So you sit here thinking about how depressing everything sounds. But it appeared just as impenetrable in the first century to the church. It wasn't impenetrable. It's the lie. It's the lie. We are in possession of the truth. Peter correctly notes that, quote, totalitarian political power joined with a syncretistic, all-tolerant world religion to insist on religious peace, end quote. That's right. The priestly state that promotes interfaith, syncretism. All were welcome. ISIS was welcome, but not Jesus Christ. No holdouts could be tolerated. They are enemies of social peace, enemies of the state. Now, the one exception to this in the ancient world of this priest-king political, religious political order was the Hebrew nation. Because the Hebrews divorced kingship and priesthood. The king could not function as a priest, and the priest was not a king. And the prophet could challenge the king in terms of the word of God. They were only united in the biblical worldview in the person of Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king. He is the only true priest-king. All these great empires, these divine human heroes, claim to be priest-kings. Jesus' coming abolished the old view of priesthood because he alone was the mediator between man and God. However, as first seen in Nimrod in the ancient world, the king was viewed as the divine human God. The eternal and temporal were mingled in his office. There was a co-mingling of the heavens with earth, especially the stars. 
which all emerged from these primeval waters. So in Rome, Julius Caesar was the democratic champion, and he assumed divinity and was honored by the Greeks of Asia as the offspring of Mars and Venus, the savior of the human race. Octavian likewise claimed to be the son of God. Augustus Caesar made the same claim at the time of the early church. There was this continuity of being and deification of men was the highest point of that continuity. The Roman kings at the very least represented Jupiter, which by the way is probably a corruption of Japheth. You all know who Japheth was, right? One of the sons of Noah. The power of such political authority rested in their claim to control, order, and govern the future and outcomes. So the, were people in the ancient world gullible? No, the, the, the authority of this, the priest kings was re- based in the idea that somehow they, as the connecting point between the human and divine, could control and eliminate chaos for man and bring about order and peace. Bring about stability, even ordain the future, bring about fertility, and so on and so forth. The priestly realm of political power was thus the kingdom of God on earth. These ancient priest kings, they're at these empire builders, they believed it was a kingdom of the gods, the gate of God. Now this is what we are trying to recreate today. This is why you see the connection between interfaith syncretism, the world building of a world state, all of these ideas, it is a counterfeit kingdom of God. In Israel, by contrast, God was king, and his, the sanctuary, the temple was his throne room, the holy of holies was his throne, the mercy seat. No human king could claim God's prerogatives. The Roman world tried to meet then the challenge of the claims of Christ as prophet priest. Now you see how radical the claim of Jesus Christ really was of the early church for Jesus Christ. That he was the only mediator between man and God. That he truly was the eternal son of God. And that he had come to establish the kingdom of God on earth. All of that language was understandable to the pagan. But they didn't like it because they knew what it meant. So how did Rome try and deal with it? Well, they tried syncretism, extermination, and denaturalization. Extermination is obvious. Syncretism is just bring Jesus in with all the others. And denaturalization, where they were ready to grant freedom of worship so long as the church recognized the right of the state to permit that freedom, was to make denaturalization, is to make it less than it is by nature. Most Christians have accepted the denaturalization of Christianity today. No freedom, of, freedom to worship will accept the state's license. We have a permission to exist by the divine human order of the state. This interfaith perspective enforced by the state was necessary to destroy uncompromising allegiance to the living God. So axiological autonomy entails political totalitarianism because it creates a rival theological order in rebellion against God. It's a theological order. That's why interfaith syncretism is so important to the modern state. The result is inescapable. One theologian puts it this way, the state has unlimited jurisdiction because it is that order in which man realizes himself. The order in which man expresses his collective divinity, vox populi, vox dei, the voice of the people is the voice of God, is in this collective of democratic consensus. That in the state, the body politic, the cosmopolis, we have the voice of God. The result is inescapable when oneism prevails because it lacks a concept of transcendence. There is only one faith that has a concept of transcendence, and that's Christianity. God is utterly distinct. All other views that claim to be twoist, that there is a God and a creation, are not truly twoist. I haven't got time to talk about that in my last hour, so I'll leave that for now. If man's soul is deified, you see, as logos, totalitarianism is the result because power and authority are imminent concepts. All power and authority is right here in the body politic, in the kingly priesthood of the state. 
That's why they think they can redefine marriage, the family, and everything else, because they're making a divine claim. Political liberalism is actually the development of theological liberalism. Because as the West abandoned God, it transferred sovereignty from God to man and so democratized authority as the basis of political life. That is, truth and right are the product of the psychology of the people, not what God says they are. Does that mean I don't believe in proportional representation and the right of the consent of the pe of people to be governed? No, of course I believe in those things. But I'm, I don't believe in the religious principle of democracy, which says the voice of people is the voice of God. If the mob says it's right, that's the divine will. That's not Christian. Liberty under God and his law is thus replaced by the liberty of nature and the development of man's right to express total autonomy from God. So syncretism, theological liberalism, that is, or oneism, separates the state from any obligation to God's theological order. And in so doing, reduces Christianity to private psychological preference and social justice, humanitarianism. That's why Obama and others can unabashedly claim to be Christian and live totally contrary, or seem to have policies totally contrary to Christianity. Here, God's law, moral law, is repealed in terms of human rights because it cannot be allowed that there be an existence of a higher law that might critique the implicit claim to divinity of the state. Syncretism is the democratization of religion, and implicit within it is the state's assumption of divinity. We are seeing that freedom for the individual is only a transitional freedom in this revolution because the source of truth and law and authority has moved from God to the state. And if the state embodies truth and reality, then there is no appeal beyond the state. You're just banging your head against a brick wall. There is no appeal to a higher transcendent authority that is over the state to which it is accountable. The rights of people become divine rights, and so politics becomes totalitarian. The revelation is issued by this new God today that the family and the church are institutions that must be destroyed and enforce syncretism or egalitarianism, which, by the way, is the political counterpart of syncretism. Syncretism religiously means egalitarianism politically. They are bedfellows. This disaster stems from the first point of axiological autonomy, revealing that religious syncretism and political totalitarianism are one and the same thing. Now let me wind up with this thought. I know you don't want me to, but I must. It is important to be reminded that the pretensions of Babel were destroyed by God himself. Babylonia is gone, Babel is gone, the empires of men of the ancient world are demolished. Scripture reminds us that we win. For of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. There is only one potentate whose name is above every name, to whom every knee will bend in heaven and earth, the true priest king, Jesus Christ, God's own son. And we've seen that oneism began with a kingdom vision, with Babel, with Nimrod, a human divine king at its center, set in rebellion against God. But that is just a satanic counterfeit of the real kingdom of God, which shall prevail. God's kingdom? Or the kingdom of Nimrod? And his Babel dream for history. Jesus Christ was sent as covenant head of a new race that would build a new world. And in Adam, the original kingdom was lost through sin, yes. But Christ, the second Adam, Paul tells us in Romans 5, is building a kingdom that, as the uncut stone of Daniel reveals, shatters all the false syncretistic empires of men and spreads to fill out the whole earth. You remember the vision of Daniel? And that uh, rock becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth, a kingdom that will endure forever. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, so that only that which cannot be shaken will remain. We are in a time of great shaking. Christ's death and resurrection, though, introduced a new world 
And the critical event that I think is overlooked in this regard is the giving of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That's not simply because I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I'm not in a Pentecostal church anymore. I took the meat and spat out the bones. But the the day of Pentecost was not just a religious event where people had an experience, the disciples had an experience. It was a change in the history of the world. As the Father and Son sent the Holy Spirit on the church to inaugurate a new covenant for the new creation. And the immediate effect of this was the breaking of the curse of Babel. How, you say? Well, the curse on the false unity of Babel was confusion. That was the curse. So that they could not build, they could no longer understand each other. Paganism, you see, steadily undermines all shared meaning because if everybody is their own God, how can you have a shared meaning? Think about that. If everybody's own self-consciousness, psychology, defines meaning for them, in the end, how can you really build true unity? Confusion is always the result of a pagan order. They couldn't understand each other. A shared meaning was lost. Now, amidst today's unifying pagan worldview, the irony is that men are everywhere at war and disunited. But at Pentecost, people from all over the known world of various languages all heard the gospel of the kingdom preached in their own language as the apostles spoke in other tongues. So you have a true principle of unity set forth on the day of Pentecost of the kingdom of God under the reign of the priest king, Jesus Christ. Brought about by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, the pouring out of the Spirit created a new race of people, a new family of God, reflecting unity and diversity that exists within the fellowship of the divine community. No one can enter the kingdom, the Bible says, without being born again by the Spirit of God. John 3, 3-8. So this fact rules out all interfaith syncretism. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without being born again by the Spirit. You cannot enter into this great unity, this great community, without that. And so all interfaith projects are ruled out. To be part of this new world, this kingdom of covenant people, you have to be born again of the Spirit. And the unity you see that man craves with the divine and with all humanity in his pagan strife, because of his internal alienation from God and himself. You see, man's alienated from himself because he believes a lie and he knows it's a lie. Now, when you pretend to believe something or live, you suppress the truth and unrighteousness and you believe a lie, you live in inherent contradiction. You're separated from God, and then you're separated from yourself. Now, that inherent disunity, that internal alienation, can only be done away by covenantal oneness with God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's covenantal oneness. It's not ontological. And in this, man no longer fears separateness or distinction. We don't see it as division anymore, for our internal alienation is done away by the new birth. The new world is grounded then in the work of the Trinity as the Father gives the Son and together they send the Spirit to bring us into covenantal, though not ontological, oneness with God and his people. The indwelling Spirit unites us to God, sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts, creating in us a response of love. This is what Ralph Smith says, a theologian, he puts it this way. Listen closely now. Through this indwelling... The Spirit unites God and man, bringing man into the covenantal fellowship of the Trinity. We could not be truly one with God unless we were made to be like Christ. Not an ontological likeness, but an ethical one. Not a likeness that eliminates individuality, but a a likeness in love by which our individuality is fully developed. So when Jesus told us the kingdom of God was near... He was referring to the restoration of the kingdom given to man at the beginning of creation. A kingdom he promised to build where Satan and his lie and all its expressions from Babel, the mother of all harlotry to the present, where where it would be overthrown and Jesus would restore the kingdom to man. It's true, we lost the kingdom. We did through the fall. But by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are getting it back, friends. We're getting it back. Christ's death and resurrection has defeated our enemy. 
And by his reconciliation of all things to himself, his kingdom age is come and he is now building a new temple from his seat of authority at the right hand of God. And the Bible tells us, don't forget, he's transforming the world now. The ruler of this age is cast out. The ruler of this age is passing away. The Great Commission tells us all authority in heaven and earth is mine, Jesus says. Therefore, go and he sends us out. To conquer in his name. So we have a message that destroys the satanic false semblance of unity and offers instead the kingdom of God, a covenant community of grace enfolded in the loving embrace of the triune God that meets all the longings for unity that men and women have in their hearts. The absurdities, the philosophical emptiness, the spiritual bankruptcy, the moral and sexual confusion of Babel has produced and is continuing to produce only broken and empty lives and cultures. But the kingdom of God, the Bible says, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's what we must preach and live so that we can say with St. Paul, where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. His strength will be shown complete and perfect in our apparent weakness as we preach and live the gospel. God be praised. Amen.